Before we go to our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a few things I want to say about it to help you, to give you a grid to process what Paul's writing. I'm taking the time now because as soon as we start reading it, you're going to see phrases that get thrown around all the time um, in discussions about how the covenants relate and what they are and what they're not. And I do want to try to simplify that for you. I want to give you a way of interpreting that so you don't look at it and go, whoa, this is, what's he talking about? That's crazy. So in our text, Paul uses a few, some phrases to refer to the Old Testament. He uses uh, the phrases, tablets of stone, the letter that kills, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant. All of those phrases, think in our text this morning, all of those phrases mean the Old Testament before Jesus came. And Paul uses other verses to refer to the New Testament. He uses verses like tablets of human hearts, the spirit giving life, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness. These all refer to the New Testament. So when we read these things, I don't want you to be intimidated by them. That's what he's talking about. There's really only two things, the Old Testament and the New Testament. He just has, he uses a lot of different names for them. What I also don't want you to think is that that's the point of the text. When in conversations I have, whenever the word covenant comes up, old covenant, new covenant, it like everyone gets has red flags go up and starts thinking and arguing and talking about what that means and what they are and what they're not. Paul says very few things about what the covenants are in our text. The first thing he says is that the Old Testament came with glory. The second thing he says is that the New Testament came with more glory. And the third and the last thing that he says about these about these. Um, about the covenant, is that he's a minister of the new covenant. That's all he says about them in this text. So there's more, the Bible has more to say about the covenants and how they relate and all of that, but that's not in our text, and that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. So as we read these things, be aware of that. That's not the point. And if you hear covenant and you tune everything else out, you're going to miss what Paul's actually writing. There's one other thing I want to, I want to tell you about the, the Corinthian church before we, before we get into our text. <clears throat> I want to remind you of who they are, of who Paul's writing to. The Corinthian church are not people that Paul has not met. They're not people that he doesn't care about. They're his children, and he loves them. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them his children. He writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For I became, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So we see in the Corinthian church that, so we see that the Corinthian church is Paul's offspring. They're his progeny. He loved, and he loves them. So as we begin to understand Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church as one of a father to his children, we begin to get the backdrop for our text. Just think of your family. I'm sure that from time to time in all of our families, there are problems that arise. And that's what's going on in the Corinthian church. There are problems. There's name-calling and backbiting, resentment, jealousy, envy. The list could go on and on. And this morning, our text picks up in the middle of one of those problems. There's some men in the Corinthian church that are accusing Paul of being a liar for not coming when he said he would. They're attacking his apostleship, and they're trying to persuade men away from him and his teaching. Our text this morning picks up specifically in the middle of Paul's answer to their accusations. Notice Paul's response, though, to being attacked. He doesn't attack. He doesn't respond by being attacked by attacking in return. 
Often that's our, our tendency. When someone slanders us, we slander them back. If someone says something about our children, we say something about their children. If someone calls us a name, we call them a name in return. I want you to realize that's not how Paul, return, Paul responds. He responds out of faith, not out of self-protection. So read with me now the word of God through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-11. to 11. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letters, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more is that which remains in glory. Now just one note about all of this talk about glory. If you want to understand how the covenants relate, You can answer this question and you'll understand it. Stars are bright and they shine in the night, right? We see them, we look in the sky on a clear night, you can see all the stars. Are there stars in the sky right now? Yes, there are stars in the sky right now. Can you see any of them? No. Why? Because the sun's bright. And its brightness is so much more that you can't see the stars. So if you want to know how the old, what it means for it to have more glory or, um, what it means for the Old Testament's glory to be fading, just think of the stars and the sun. The stars are there. The Old Covenant's still there. But it's surpassed by the glory of the New Covenant. You can't see the stars because of the sun. Now, as Paul begins to write in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins this section by referring back to what he had just said at the end of chapter 2, namely, that he is not like the many peddling the word of God. Now, it could seem like Paul's elevating himself above all the other preachers by saying he's not like them. But this is the exact opposite of what Paul is doing. In verse 1, he asks, are we commending ourselves again? It's as if he's saying, come on, guys, you remember when I was there. Am I the guy that was always talking about how great I was and all the things I'd done? It's laughable. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, that he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul wasn't busy discussing where he had been and all the things he had done. His business, his only business with the Corinthians was to preach Christ to them. He didn't have time to to talk about anything else. And this isn't unique to his relationship to the Corinthian church. Paul never commends himself to anyone, except that when he tells them to imitate Christ by imitating him, be like me just as I am like Christ. This is the only way we ever find Paul commending himself to others. Now, he does commend other men to people. He commends Timothy and Silas and Luke and many others in the New Testament. 
And he commends their faith and and exhorts the churches to receive them, to welcome them as brothers. So don't get from this that that commendation is bad, that it's wrong. That's not what it's about. What you need to know is that Paul never commends himself. He commends other people. And what that is is a sign of humility. That's all. However, if he had been commending himself, he would have needed his testimony validated. That's all a commendation is. It's just someone else standing in for you and saying, he's qualified to do this job. He can accomplish that task. That's all a letter of commendation is. If you think about it, that's really all a college degree is. It's a school saying that you've sufficiently met their requirements and that they acknowledge that you are qualified to do the work in whatever field your degree is in. The diploma is the proof. It's the stamp. It's supposed to prove your adequacy. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but think about this question. Does does a college diploma actually make the person qualified? What's the proof? What is actually the proof of their adequacy? It's not their piece of paper. Here's another example. Just think of the whole passport system. How many of you have passports? And you love showing them to other people. Not very many of you have them. I'm surprised. But what's the point of a passport? Why do we have them? Well, they get us in and out of the country, and they, let, they help with national, national security, and it helps people, the government, keep track of where we've been and, and when we were there. But that really doesn't matter to us. None of that stuff serves us. What do we like about our passports? What do, why do we like them? What's cool about them? Well, what a passport is is a record of all the places you've been and the time that you were there. That's all it is. That's what the stamp is. It's got a country and a, and a date and a time when you were there. What's the best part of that, that book full of stamps, that passport? Inevitably, it's that you get to show all of your friends all the places you've been. And when they see where you've been, surely they'll think more highly of you. They'll think, oh, he's been here and he's been there and he studied there and he visited there and he went backpacking and this and that on this and that mountain in that country. I've never been to any of those places or done any of those things. My passport has one stamp. I think it has a stamp. It's from Mexico, so there's nothing fancy about it. <laughs> so what's the point of the validation? What's the point of the stamp on the passport? Proof. Look at what I did. Look where I've been. That's the point of it. But what does that stamp prove? All it proves is that you were there at a certain time. It doesn't say anything about your business there. Now, how about this? Right now, Joseph and Heidi are going to Ethiopia to pick up their son. And when they get back, do you think they'll be falling all over themselves to show you the stamp on their passports, proving to you that they've been to Ethiopia so that you'll think, well, that's nice. (laughs) That's crazy. Of course that's not what they're going to do. When they get back, They're going to be ecstatic to introduce you to their new son. Their son will be their proof. And it's the same with Paul. When he asks the question, are we commending ourselves again? Do we need letters of recommendation to you? It's ridiculous for the exact same reason that it would be ridiculous for you to ask Joseph and Heidi for their passports as proof when they get back. Joseph and Heidi's son is their proof. And the Corinthian church's very existence is the proof of Paul's work among them. He started the church. They are the proof. As Paul writes in verse 2, 
They're his letter of commendation. They are the fruit. They're the proof. They're his children. Now, at this point, it could look like Paul's taking credit for them and for their growth, but actually he's not. He writes in verse 2 that the Corinthians are his letter, known and read by all men. But the letter, the stamp that they bear, is not his. It's Christ's. Paul is their shepherd. He's their pastor. He's their father. But Paul's fatherhood is not physical. It's spiritual. Paul has been commissioned by God through Christ to care for them. Now here in verse 3, Paul begins to explain how he cares for them, the nature of his work. Paul's work is not with ink or on tablets of stone. It's by the Holy Spirit on human hearts that he works. The imagery that Paul uses here points back to God's promises in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37, where God promises that he'll make a new covenant with his people, that he'll remove their heart of stone, and that he'll give them a heart of flesh. And the Holy Spirit's the way that, the God, that God will bring this about. Now, at this point, no one would deny that. They'd say, yeah, God, God works. He said he'd do it, and he's done it. He gives people a new heart, and he does it by its Holy Spirit. There's no one who's going to disagree with that. Do you know what you will do, what does irritate people, what makes them angry, the thing they don't like? It's that, that God sends his Holy Spirit to work through his church. Not through individual people. He sends it to his church. And the church is the only place that men and women, Christians, the family of God, will be cared for by God. It's through this church and through the leadership of his church. This is Paul's call to care for, to lead, to be a father to the church. And it's the same today within the church. The pastors and elders are the leaders, the fathers of the church, and they're responsible to care for her. They're responsible for you and me. <clears throat> on verse 4, we see that Paul's confidence is not in himself or the work that he did among the Corinthians. His confidence is in God through Christ. And again in verse 5, Paul writes that he's not adequate to produce anything of himself, nothing. It's God that causes growth. So what you have is Paul saying, you're my letter, you're my proof. I've done this work. And now you have him saying, I didn't do anything. God did all of these things. I'm not adequate to do any of it. It sounds like I can't do anything. What can I do? I'm a sinner too, you know. That's not what he's saying. Sadly, today, but sadly today, so many pastors and elders do take that approach to leadership. They think that their sin disqualifies them from ever being able or responsible to rebuke anyone that they're to care for. So let's take a short look at Paul. He's their pastor. He wrote this letter. So who was he? Well, we find out, well, we learned earlier that Paul is a man who doesn't commend himself to anyone. In fact, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. When it came to sin, he was the leader of the pack. So it's agreed, yes, Paul was a sinner, but he spoke and he wrote with authority that he received from God, not from himself. He knew his sin, but he didn't, it didn't keep him from constantly rebuking and correcting the people that he was to care for. Now, here's the problem. You know, I know what the problem is. We have in our own minds, we've constructed qualifications for leadership, for people that we'll submit to. And you know what the number one qualification is? You won't find it in, in the pastoral epistles. You won't find it in First and Second Timothy or Titus. You know what it is? It's that our leadership can't sin. 
They have to not sin. If they sin, there's no way that we can listen to them. We can't fathom of listening to someone else who's a sinner telling us what to do, what we should and should not do. So does Paul fit the bill? It's clear that he doesn't. Paul's a sinner. He's disqualified. After all, Paul was the dude that held the robes while Stephen was stoned. Stephen was the first first martyr. He was stoned because of his faith, because of his preaching. And Paul stood there and held the robes of the men who did it and approved of it. That's who Paul was. And you know who wrote it down? Luke, in the book of Acts. Luke is recorded as being one of Paul's close friends, his traveling companion. Could you even conceive of one of your best friends still hanging out with you if they knew that you had done the things that Paul had done? I couldn't. And that's just hanging out with you. That's not receiving instruction from you. Are you starting to see what sort of a mountain you're trying to climb? If you're a sinner and you're trying to lead people, everyone says, you're a sinner. We can't listen to you. We can't do what you say. You're just like me. It creates a problem. Nowadays, the people just want to, they they see that and they go, well, if I'm going to be a leader, that means I can't be a sinner. What it doesn't mean is they hide their sin, that they get rid of their sin. They can't get rid of their sin. So what they do is start trying to hide it because they know, they think people won't listen to them if they, if they know who they are, if they know that they're a sinner. And that's not what Paul does. As Paul cares for the Corinthian church, he knows his sin and he doesn't try to hide it. Now, I'm not talking about sin that grace may abound. I'm not talking about Paul being flagrant with his sin and not caring about it. He cared about his sin. He fought against his sin. In Romans 7, he says that he fights against his sin daily. But he also doesn't lie about his past and the things he did. His involvement in Stephen's stoning wasn't a skeleton in his closet that no one could ever mention. The Holy Spirit even recorded it for us so that we would know, not just Luke and the people who were around at the time, but that we would know Paul and that by extension we would know his sin. I'm only telling you all this to help you realize that Paul's friends, the congregations that he served, knew who he was. He wasn't fake with them. He didn't didn't parade around a facade of being above them. He was a man. He was a sinner and he was their pastor. So does Paul fit the model of sinless leadership? Is he a man that doesn't sin? No, he doesn't. We can't even begin to think of a sinner speaking authoritatively to us. It's like a square, trying to put a square peg in a round hole. You know, A sinner that speaks against sin, it like does not compute in our brains. The only people who can tell us that we're sinners are people who don't sin. That's the way we think about it. <clears throat> and Paul didn't just talk about this sin and that sin, he talked about your sin and your sin and his sin. It wasn't um, ambiguous. He was very clear when he spoke and when he wrote. Now, Paul's accusers in the Corinthian church don't have the whole story. We've read earlier in First Corinthians, First, Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, that he's explaining why he did not come to visit them. Okay, they were accusing him before they knew why he didn't come. So he says, this is actually the reason why I didn't come to you. But before they knew that, they were accusing Paul. And what were they accusing him of? They started raising all their flags and shouting, Paul, he's a liar. He lied to us. He said he was going to come and he didn't come. He lied. You know what that amounts to? You know what that is? 
All it is is a bunch of smoke and mirrors. All they're doing is saying, Paul, you're a sinner, and we won't listen to you. We won't submit to you. We won't do what you say because you're a sinner. Without knowing why he did what he did, why the circumstances were the way they were. Now I want you to think of your own children. Remember, the Corinthian church are his children. I want you to think of your children. Isn't it just like your children to not know the whole story and be jumping to to conclusions about why things happened the way they did? You just don't want me to have any fun. That's why you won't let me... How many parents have heard that sort of thing? Everyone hears that sort of thing from their kids. You won't let me play with the neighborhood kids. You won't let me wear wear those clothes. It's not fair. All my friends get to go. You won't let me go to that movie. It's not fair. Everyone else is dating. You won't let me date. All you care about is me not having fun. That's your whole purpose, Mom. That's your whole purpose, Dad. You just don't want me to have any fun. That's why you don't let me do these things. Now, if you don't have kids and you haven't had anyone say that to you, I'm sure that you said that. (laughs) Listen, that's exactly what's going on in the Corinthian church. They're his children and they're slandering him. They don't know the whole story and they're making accusations about why things are the way they are, why he did what he did, and they're wrong. I'm going to ask you a question and it's going to seem redundant, but it's not. Just stay with me. Who's Paul writing to? Well, you think, well, he's writing to the Corinthians. You know, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He started it and he's writing to them. That's true, but what I want you to know is that he's writing to adults. But they're his children. But they're adults. But they're children. And the reason I'm telling you this is that we have this disconnect in our brain about adults and children. You're either one or the other, but you can't be both. You can't be in authority and be under authority at the same time. And that's the problem they're struggling with. They're children. They're under his authority. But they're adults. They're not five years old. What I want you to notice from that, from what I've just said, is that Paul, as their parent, as their father, teaches them. Parents teach their children. Now, the issue in the Corinthian church is that they're pushing back against his authority, against his apostleship, against his fatherhood. If you're you're a parent, I want you to listen very carefully right now. Our children will learn to think our thoughts and to do our actions. Now, to the extent that we're godly and we obey Christ, that's a blessing. Our kids will see it and they'll duplicate it. But our children aren't blind, and they will see us sin. We wish that it wasn't that way, but I'll tell you what. It's a blessing that your children see you sin. And the reason is that when you sin and your children see it, you have opportunities to show them what repentance is and what humility is. You can show them what submission is. That's your opportunity as parents when your children see you sin. You can choose to gloss over it and act like it didn't happen and... Make no big deal out of it, and your kids will learn from that. So here's an example. Your children will see you get, they'll be in the car, you'll get pulled over. It hasn't happened to me yet, but my oldest is only two. He just hasn't hasn't happened to be with me yet. You know what my son sees when I get pulled over? My son sees how I interact with the officer, with with the cop. My son sees whether or not I apologize to the officer for breaking the law. And you know what's more? He sees me after the officer goes back to his car. 
Even if I do, oh, officer, I'm sorry. Yes, I know. I was late. You know, and then he goes back to his car and you're oh, rolling your eyes and you're mad. And you're looking at your clock and you're late. And this is so stupid. Why is this happening? Your kids see that and they learn from it. When they see you acting that way, they can tell whether you're sorry for breaking the law or if you're just sorry for getting caught doing it. And there's a huge difference. What they see in those situations speaks volumes to them about how Christians should interact with authority. If they see you disrespecting the officer and the speed limits and then grumbling about it all after it's over, they'll know two things. Number one, you don't mind breaking laws. And number two, that you don't like being under authority. That's what they'll learn from you. And guess where they're going to show you the things that they've gleaned? Where are you going to see that produce fruit? It's going to be with you, their parents, because you're their authority. It then goes from you being the one in submission to the officer to you being the one in authority and your kids being the one in submission to you. And they go, well, mom and dad, they just huff and puff and blow the house down when the cop pulls them over. And then they're going to do it to you. And then you're going to ask this question that every parent has asked. And you know what it is? They get all mad. They see their kid do something and they say, where did he learn to do stuff like that? Where did he learn to talk like that? Who taught him that? Now, who do they ask that question to? Most likely, they ask that question to their spouse. And inevitably, that question leads to an argument. Because in me saying, where did he learn to do that? I'm really saying, he didn't learn it from me, which means he learned it from you. (laughs) Okay? Now listen, I know I haven't been married that long. I haven't been married as long as most of you who are married. But it also hasn't been that long since I was the child in the home. And I know where I learned some of my sins. Now I'm not saying that I'm not responsible for them. I'm not shifting the blame to my parents for my sins. I, can, I know that I'm completely responsible for them. Don't worry. I know they're mine and I bear the, the guilt of them. But don't let that drown out the fact that I did learn sins from my parents. And your children will learn your sins from you. They'll learn how to interact with authority by watching you. If they see you blowing off the officer and the small group leader and the pastor, that's what they'll learn. They'll learn that rules and the authorities that enforce them are only optional. And they get to decide when they have to submit to them. I'm just saying that you can teach them as much, if not more, with your actions than with your words. If they don't see you joyfully submitting to authority, they're not going to do it either. Now, here's the other danger with having children. You hear me say all of this and you think, you just redetermine in yourself, I'm, I'm going to make sure my kids don't see me sin. I'm going to, I'm going to protect them from it because I don't want them to, to, be, to reap the consequences. I don't want to have them to pay the price for my sins. So you, you, you do it. Your kids grow up in your home thinking you're not a sinner. Now, that's laughable. Anyone who has children knows that your, parents, your kids won't grow up thinking that. They'll know you're a sinner. You may not talk about it, but they'll know. But say that you do. Say that your kids growing up, grow up thinking, my mom and dad are perfect. They never make mistakes. Do you know what you've done for your children? You failed them. And do you know why you failed them? Because you haven't taught them 
how to submit to fallen authority. So when they go into college or into high school or just into regular school, they go into college, they go to get a job, they're involved in a church, they won't know how to submit to authority that's sinful. They won't have any, any way of processing someone who is wrong sometimes. They'll just think, well, the only authority I'm going to submit to is one that never makes a mistake. And of course that means they'll submit to who? It mean, well, you say no one, but what it really means is themselves. They'll only do what they think is right. There was a time when God wrote that it was bad because men did what was right in their own eyes. You have to teach your children how to submit to fallen authority. You're fallen. It shouldn't be hard for you to do. They'll see it. Just talk to them about it. Okay? And one last thing about that. Remember that submission, it's not submission unless you have reservations about the decision. It's easier for you to go along to get along when you agree. Submission is when you don't agree. That's when it starts. Okay? Now back to the text. In the end of verse 5, Paul writes that his adequacy is from God. So what makes Paul adequate? It's clearly not that he's above sin and that he's not a sinner. But he says his adequacy comes from God. So what makes him adequate? What makes a pastor adequate? Well, nowadays, if we were to ask if a man was adequate to be a pastor, is he qualified to be a pastor, there's a few things we'd look at. And to start, you would look at the size of his church. You would look at how quickly his church is growing. And you would look at his reputation. You would look and see, do people like him? Is he well-respected in the community? Is he invited to the, this luncheon and that luncheon? Is he popular? And that's what we'd use to, to judge him. And if he had a large church or a small one that was growing, and he was well-liked, he's a good pastor. That's it. No more questions asked. Good pastor. End of story. And there's one other thing. He'll have the right degree you know, the letter of commendation from the right, to, right seminary. He'll have gotten the right training, you know. Which is a problem for the guys in the pastor's college because we're not going to have the right degree from the right place in the world's eyes. But I'll tell you, the training that we get from, from, the, from the men who teach us is worth its weight in gold. And we'll have a, we will have a big piece of paper that says we graduated from Clear Note Pastors College. But outside of here and maybe a few other places, no one's going to care. They're going to go, where? Who? Who are you? Okay. <clears throat> so the problem with measuring a man's adequacy it, by these things, by the size of his church, by his reputation, by where he was trained, is that none of those things are how the Bible measures a pastor. It's not how it takes its measure. If you look through the Bible, you'll look and try to find, well, okay, Dave, what's, uh, what makes a pastor adequate? What makes him qualified to preach and to care for God's people? You won't find a list. I mean, you'll find qualifications for elders and deacons in the pastoral epistles, but you're not going to find a pastor is this, a pastor is not that. He must do this. He must not do that. You're, not, you're just not going to find it. Does that mean that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about what qualifies a man to be a pastor? No. If you want to know what qualifies a man to be, the, be a pastor, 
You look to the Word of God and you find the pastors that are written about in there. Make sense? You find pastors who are godly and you model yourself after them. You say, they did these things. They didn't do those things. They said these things. They didn't say those things. And Paul is a great place to start. He's the author of of this letter. So we're going to take a look at Paul as a pastor and see some of the characteristics that he had. First, Paul was a man of no account. There were only two groups of people in the whole world who knew who Paul was. The first group were the people who heard him preach and were converted by his preaching. They heard and they believed. You know who the other group was? The ones who heard him preach and were hardened by it. That's it. Those are the only people who knew who Paul was. That's the extent of his fame, and he wasn't very well known. And you're all looking at me, you're kind of frowning, going, but Paul, Paul, he, he wrote half the New Testament. You know, we read, people are all up in arms about who Paul is and what he wrote and what he meant today. That's today. But when Paul wrote, the only people who would have known who Paul was were the people that were affected by his ministry, the people who were close to the church. And of those who knew him, including the people who were hardened and the people who were converted, so people inside the church and outside of the church, my guess is that a majority of them didn't like Paul. And the major, major reason that he's writing this letter is because there are people who, who are slandering him, who are speaking against him within the church, within the Corinthian church. There are men there saying Paul is a liar, he's not honorable, he's weak. That's who he's writing to. There are men in the church who don't like him, who want to displace him. That's why he's writing. He's having to defend himself. So first, he's a man of no account. He's not well-known and popular. Second, he was a man that spoke the truth, and he spoke it boldly. There was a reason people didn't like Paul, and it was because of his preaching. Some people loved him and some people hated him, but it was because of the same thing. It was because of his preaching. Some people loved it. Others were offended by it. Now, often today, when you hear preaching that makes people mad, that offends them, it's something like that group that's on IU's campus that shows up and says, God hates fags, and they hold big signs, and everyone hates them. So what's their goal? What's their purpose? Why are they there? It's not the same as Paul's. Okay? Paul's purpose in preaching the word of God is to see men converted, to see people come to Christ. He's not preaching to make people mad. He's not preaching for the sake of making a ruckus in the Areopagus. He's preaching because he wants to see men believe in Christ. Well, nowadays, you think, I think most pastors would agree with that statement. I want to preach the gospel, and I want to see people converted to Jesus Christ. That's my goal. That's the goal of my ministry. That's why I do what I do. Well, that's Paul's goal, and that's their goal. But something doesn't compute, because most pastors nowadays aren't like Paul. So what's the difference between Paul and them? The difference is that Paul relied on God to make his converts, and the men of today don't. He didn't have it in himself to do it. Now today, you can imagine it's different. Preaching is different. We have a building, we have lights, and we have podiums. Preaching, church wasn't like that when the church started. 
It was in homes. It was in the streets. It was not in confined places where only church people came. There was all kinds of people who heard it. Okay? But today we have the luxury of having a microphone and having a podium and having chairs and all of this. And what today is all about, what the preaching of the word today is all about, is about presentation and style and using the right words so that people will understand understand you and believe you. That's all there is to it. If we present the gospel the right way, if I dress the right way, if I use the right words, if I stand the right way, if I've been trained by the right people in the right places, you'll believe what I have to say and you'll become a Christian. That's the way it works. So we get nice buildings and we dress nice and we have nice cars and we live in big homes so that our people will believe the gospel. Some of you are giving me the dignity of laughing. That's a joke. <laughs> that, that has nothing to do. That is so far away from what, who Paul was and what he did when he ministered to people, when he preached to them. Imagine with me for a second. Paul, sitting in his tent or wherever he slept at night, scratching his head wondering, well, how can I tell them the gospel? How can I, how can I tell them about their sin without them getting mad at me? I wonder how I can do it. It's, uh, if, I, if, if, if they get mad, they won't believe. So I, I can't make them mad. Now, can, you ever, can you think of Paul ever doing that? Sitting around wondering, well, I wonder what they think of me. I wonder uh, what they'll do to me. <laughs> I, just, I just can't handle getting beaten one more time or getting whipped or getting put in prison again. I just can't handle it. Let me, what can I do to avoid that? If you think like that, it completely undercuts the gospel. They won't preach. You just won't preach. Your ordering principle is to have people like you, to have a big church, to have a good salary, and a safe life. Paul didn't have any of those things. And he was a faithful pastor. Paul's purpose in preaching and teaching was to draw a very clear line in the sand and to show you which side you stood on. Only a man who loves you will do that. A man who doesn't love you will lie to you and he'll blur the line. And he'll say, yeah, if you call yourself a Christian, well, that means you're a Christian. There's never any question about it. Because you've said that you're a Christian. Or you come to church on Sunday, that makes you a Christian. And I'll never question it. Paul's most evangelistic tool was speaking the truth, preaching the gospel to people clearly so that they could understand. Don't make any mistake. The people who didn't believe Paul didn't believe because they didn't understand. They understood and they rejected it. Okay? So Paul's purpose was to draw a line in the sand and say, you're here or you're there, and it's clear to you. There's no other way that Paul, when he leaves Corinth, and this is what he did, he took his clothes and he shook them, and he said to them, I'm not guilty for the blood, your blood. I preached to you the whole counsel of God, and you rejected it. He was honest with them. He spoke clearly to them. <clears throat> That's the main difference between Paul and most preachers today. His message cut between joint and marrow. It divided them. Where the golden rule today for pastors is to never offend anyone and to make sure that everyone feels like they're a part of the group. Even if they're not really, and we know they're really not, 
we'll make them feel like they are because we wouldn't want them to feel like they're an outsider. So it's no surprise that people were offended by Paul's preaching. And as a result, they opposed him and they tried to turn people away from him. Now I'm talking about the men in the Corinthian church. Um, They knew what Paul was about. They knew what he was writing about and... That's why they opposed him. It wasn't because they weren't sure what he was saying. My experience has been this. I like to go deer hunting. And the deer that I shoot at and miss don't mind much. I I actually got three shots off at one deer. Within five minutes, missed all three times. Now, it was windy and raining. and (laughs) It really wasn't. But um, the deer didn't mind. They hear the gun go off and they kind of look around, you know. And they just go back to eating their grass. I ran out. I only had three shots with me. And they wandered off into the wood, woods unharmed. Now, I did shoot a deer and kill it. I didn't miss every time. But I did get a deer. And I'll tell you what. That deer knew what happened. The men in the Corinthian church know what Paul's about. They know what's happening. And that's why they were attacking Paul. They wanted to build their own kingdom and protect what they had. And they knew that the only way to do it was to become the leader, to displace the current leader. They knew that if Paul came back to them and did visit them, he'd come with a rod. So what's the application for us? Well, America is a lot like the city of Corinth. It's overrun with immorality. And it hates anything and anyone that has authority. So the first application to us is to submit to the authorities that God has placed over his church, to submit to them. He appointed Paul to do the work of a pastor, and then God made him adequate to do it. Paul was never adequate of his own accord. It was God who did it. And that's the way God still works within his church. He appoints pastors and elders to rule his church, and we must submit to them. Now, here's what I really mean. You could make the case that the Corinthian church did submit to Paul. He wrote to them and said, cast the man out. And they did it. And then he wrote him again and he said, let him back in. He repented. And they did it. Now you could call that submission and I wouldn't argue with you. They they did what they were told. But that's not the submission I'm talking about. The submission I'm talking about comes from a heart that trusts the authority and wants to please them. And that's completely different. Okay? It's It's doing what you're told the first time. It's doing what you're told in counseling, not in formal rebukes, right? Now, it's hardwired in us to question everything and only do what we're told once we're convinced we should. That's not submission. If you're hesitant, if you wait until you're convinced in your own mind that you have to do this certain thing, that's not submission. God placed pastors and elders over you, and he made them adequate to serve you, to protect you, to rebuke you and correct you, to submit to them. By God's mercy, they're adequate. And here's the second application. This is the last application. The Corinthian church is like our church. And all I mean by that is that there are people in that church who are angry about things that have happened or things that are going on or how things get done. And they're speaking out against Paul. They're saying, Paul's a liar, Paul this, Paul that. Now, I know that stuff goes on here. I hear the conversations. Sometimes I'm the person saying it. 
Now listen, you're not blind. You're children, and you see that stuff going on. The same way that the congregants in the Corinthian church saw what those men were saying and what they were doing. And you know what? Paul's writing to them because no one in the church took care of it. If you see these sort of things going on, if you see people being disgruntled and angry and bad-mouthing the pastors, defend them. Correct, defend the pastors. Correct the men who are speaking out against them. Because you know what? It doesn't matter if you like the pastor or even if you think the pastor's right. The pastor has been put in place by God. And God has, appoint, God has appointed him to do it and will make him adequate to do the work. And you can trust him. You can trust them. And you can point others to trusting them also. God is faithful. God makes them adequate. That's our work. One last story. Before I moved here, when my wife and I were dating, we had a meeting with Tim and Mary Lee. My question as a brand new Christian was, what do we do to get married? How do we go about this process? I, I've never done this before. <laughs> and, what, and what Tim says to me, and there was tears everywhere, Tim and Mary Lee and Vanessa and I, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Tim says, you guys need to break up. And I said, well, why? Because, of course, if I'm going to submit, I want to know why. And he said, well, let me just say, if she was my daughter, I wouldn't let you talk to her. She's not my daughter, and I can't make her not talk to you, but if she was, I wouldn't let her near you. Why? Well, because of my past. And he was afraid that I would, I would do damage to her. So that was the gist of the conversation. It lasted an hour. There was tons of tears, lots of Kleenex. But we left saying, well, what are we going to do? Just a little note to you. If you ever ask someone for advice, you really should do what they say. You shouldn't ask them if you don't want to know what they think. But if you do ask them and you don't do what they say, it's really a slap in the face. So... I drove back to Chicago, my five-hour car ride, wondering, well, what am I going to do now? So the next day, I called Vanessa, or she called me, I don't remember, and we decided we're going to break up indefinitely. Now, as I look back, I can see that Paul, that Paul, that what Tim was saying, that he saw things in me and areas that I needed to grow that I wasn't aware of. So I can look back and say, he was right. I agree with him. That's why I submitted. But the truth is, I looked like a deer in headlights in that meeting. He was telling me things about myself that I, was, I just had never heard before. No one had ever said to me, you know, you've been an immoral man. And I wouldn't let you near my daughter because of that. Sorry, what? <laughs> I mean, we all know it, but you're not supposed to say it. Now listen, I'm not holding myself up as the example of what submission is. I'm just not. But what you need to know is that God has blessed his church with leadership and that God has made them adequate to serve you, to protect you, to rebuke you, to instruct you, to teach you, to love you. So submit to them. Help them in their work. Make their work a joyful work because it's hard work for them.